The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Everybody here in the room, everybody online, welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. God welcomes you. I welcome you, and if you're a visitor this morning, we welcome you as a church. We're so grateful that you're here with us, and I hope you feel welcomed. I hope you'll give us a chance to connect with you. You've been invited to Trunk or Treat already tonight, and so I hope you'll come to that, and you've been invited to the prayer walk after service. I hope you'll consider joining us for that. I also wanted to invite you to next Sunday as we begin a brand new sermon series here called Sharing Possessions, Our Goods, and the Good News. So we've been talking about the gospel for a while in this series, and before that we were talking about how to share the gospel. And so we're going to talk for a few weeks about sharing the gospel with our stuff, right? Sharing the gospel with our resources. If the good news is that God has so generously shared his life with us, what does that salvation mean for our stuff? What does the good news mean for our goods. So I hope you'll be here next Sunday morning as we begin a brand new sermon series called Sharing Possessions. But we're finishing up the gospel according to, we've been in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so we're gonna finish with our fourth and final canonical gospel, the gospel of John. We're gonna be in chapter two, verses 13 through 22 this morning. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Lord, what a gift you have given us to be gathered here this morning. What a gift you have given us to place us in this community to be friends of you, to have the chance to love one another and to love you. God, help us to love you this morning through scripture. I ask for the gift of preaching. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to hear the good news in this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The word. John's gospel begins with the word. 
John begins with the word who was with God in the beginning. And when John ends the life of Jesus on the cross, he ends with a word. One word. Now that one word, when translated into English, takes a few words, but Jesus' final utterance on the cross in the Gospel of John says, it is finished. Or it is completed. It is perfected. Which leaves us asking the question, what is finished? What is completed? What is perfected in Jesus? Well, it's kind of ironic that John's final utterance for Jesus on the cross is one word, because Jesus in John's gospel is pretty wordy. Have you ever noticed that? He talks a lot in John. He talks often and at length, more, it seems, than in the other gospels, which raises for us something interesting this morning, that John's gospel is different. It's very different. It is far and away the most distinct voice, the most distinct depiction of the life of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. Laura and I watched a movie recently called I'm Not There. It's a music biopic of the life of Bob Dylan. And it's interesting, though, because in this movie, Bob Dylan is portrayed six different ways by six different actors. Right? He's, he's portrayed by Heath Ledger and Christian Bale, but also people like Kate Blanchett and Marcus Carl Franklin. Right? So it's, it's a very odd movie, and yet it reveals truths, it captures things about Bob Dylan that perhaps a more straightforward movie might not have. In fact, some of those casting choices seem much more straightforward than others, but the person that really kind of stole the movie for me was Kate Blanchett, who portrays a kind of mid-60s Bob Dylan and really gets at the essence of him in a really fascinating way. It captures truths that something more straightforward might not have gotten. Of the four canonical gospels that we have, John's is by far the most uniquely cast. John's depiction of Jesus is far and away the most stylized, distinct portrait of Jesus that we have. It's, it's highly interpretive, and that's a good thing, right? In fact, scholars like to refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels. The, they see together. They're kind of a summary together, right? You can see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while we've learned over the last few weeks that they each have their own distinct voice, Generally, they follow kind of the same form and structure, but John is different, right? John gives us this beautiful, highly interpreted picture of who Jesus is. Remember how I said a, a few weeks ago, we might not have done it that way. If we were compiling the Bible, we might have just said, you know, in our prosaic, just the facts, journalistic mentality, we might have said, all right, just one account of Jesus, one, that's it. But God gave us four. The Holy Spirit gave us four distinct yet complementary portraits of Jesus. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is less of a fundamentalist than we sometimes are. 
John gives us an incredible portrait of Jesus. And we see this also in our sermon graphic. You might notice Kristen Klein designed this. There's four different creatures, one in each corner, and these are called the tetramorph. There's a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and these come from Ezekiel chapter one. And very early on, Christians started associating each of these creatures with one of the gospel writers. Most often, John is associated with the eagle. Perhaps because in John's gospel, there is this high-flying, exalted perspective. This exalted perspective of Jesus, right? John doesn't include the story of the transfiguration. And some people have said, maybe that's because on every page of John's gospel, Jesus is transfigured. On every page, we see this incredible, exalted image of Jesus. A portrait painted from the perspective of the end, from the stories being finished. And we see that even in our text in John chapter two. So let's turn back to John two, verses 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So Jesus, it's Passover and he goes to the temple. And remember, this is the second temple, right? Solomon built that glorious structure that was eventually burned and raised and Israel was taken off into captivity in Babylon. But some of them came back and they were able to start the second temple, right? They started building that. And if you want to know more about that, by the way, Ryan and Luke have a great class going on the Apocrypha for this intertestamental period. But Herod the Great takes up that renovation a few decades before Jesus' life, and he makes it this beautiful, amazing, glorious temple again. And that's where Jesus goes. It's the Passover, and he goes to the temple, which is the very heart of Judaism, right? It's the beating heart of this entire culture, worship, music, politics, and celebration happens at the temple, and celebrations at the temple are very important for John. Right? This is one of the really cool ways that John structures Jesus' story is that he's very much connected to festivals at the temple. Right? The other three gospels really basically just give us one Passover around Jesus' death. John gives us no less than six feasts at the temple. Right? We get three Passovers in John. We get the feast of the dedication of the temple. We get the feast of tabernacles. Jesus and the temple and these celebrations are very closely connected in John. So when Jesus walks in, in this passage, to the temple, John is clanging a bell that's going to ring and vibrate throughout the rest of the gospel. The temple is very important to who Jesus is and what he's doing. And we see that in his actions, right? Moving ahead to verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house 
will consume me. Jesus is probably near the animals. There's no weapons allowed in the temple, but he grabs and fashions some kind of makeshift whip out of cords or reeds or ropes, and he drives out the animals, right? Basically saying, you're not gonna need these anymore. Right? And he, he turns over the tables, he flips open the cups of the money changers. And Christians have, we've kind of notoriously used this passage, I think, at times to justify ourselves when we lose our temper or anger crosses a line. Unless you're the sinless, sinless son of God, I don't recommend that. But Jesus is doing something more than, than being angry here, right? He's, he's doing this singular, dramatic prophetic action, right? Jesus is coming in and he's saying the regular way of doing things is over, right? He's upending the status quo of the sacrificial system. He's saying, you're not going to need these animals anymore. He's saying, I'm, I'm cleansing this temple. I'm purifying it from this greed and I'm starting something new. I'm doing a new thing, The status quo is coming to an end. In other words, it is finished. But if the old system is being upended, if Jesus is is doing something new, what is this new thing he's instituting in its place? Well, in verse 18, it says, The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. The old temple is being done away with because Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is, is the new temple. Jesus is the new place you go to encounter God. Jesus is the new place where the glory of God is seen. Jesus is the new center of Israel, the new beating heart of his people. That's where worship happens in Jesus. And this is what John has been saying from the very beginning in chapter one that Brian read earlier. Chapter one, verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son full of grace and truth. Remember that word lived among us is take up residence or or literally tabernacled Right, going back to the Old Testament tabernacle, the, the portable temple, the tent that they would carry around with them where God's glory dwelt. Where that was God's address, right? But the tabernacle gives way to the temple and the temple gives way to Jesus. The word made flesh who tabernacles among us, who dwells with us. It's the same in another book associated with John, the Apocalypse of John, Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell, the same word, with them. 
They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. The temple is God's place of dwelling and that temple is now Jesus. The old temple is one of those first things that have passed away. And now God is is tabernacling among us in an unprecedented way in a human body, in the body of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, that temple of Jesus' body and in the resurrection, it is finished. So if Jesus brings a new temple and temples are for worshiping, What does worship look like at the temple of Jesus? What does worshiping God, encountering God, sacrifice, offering, what does that look like in the temple of Jesus? Well, Jesus tells his followers in John chapter 15 what sacrifice, what worship looks like. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Worship according to the temple of Jesus is love. Sacrifice in the temple of Jesus is love, is laying down your lives in love. That's the offering at Jesus' temple. That's how we relate to God, worshiping Jesus in love. And isn't that the gospel of John's beautiful gift to us? Isn't that the gospel of John's beautiful gift to the world? That the gospel of John is above all the gospel of God's love. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of course, talk about love. In every of those gospels, Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets with love. He says, love God, love your neighbor. That's the summary of the Old Testament. But Mark only mentions love a a few times. Matthew and Luke mention it about a dozen times. John mentions it almost 40 times. More than the other three combined. The gospel of John is the gospel of the love of God, the God who so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus. And in Jesus, the new temple worship is love. In Jesus, the new temple sacrifice is a sacrifice of love. That's how we interact with God. That's how we interact with each other. That's how we worship at the temple of Jesus. Worshiping in Jesus' temple is sacrificing in love. It's loving the poor. It's serving the least of these. It's confession. It's forgiving the person who's wronged you. It's loving your enemies. It's sending that apology text. It's sacrificing your seat at the best table in the lunchroom to sit with the kid who has no friends. It's inviting people into the circle of Jesus' love and friendship. That is worship at the temple of Jesus laying down our lives for one another. As John Bear writes, in, in Jesus' passion, 
the true temple is raised up and a new form of sacrifice, that of love, is brought about. And it is in the passion, it is in the cross and the resurrection where the temple is built. And we see temple imagery with Jesus hanging on the cross. In John chapter 19, verses 32 through 34, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Water flows from the side of Jesus. Water and blood. Christians reading their Bibles, we've puzzled over this. What is this water and blood? Is there a deeper significance here? Is this baptism and the Lord's Supper maybe water and blood? Possibly. But we also see temple imagery here. In Ezekiel chapter 47, it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Water flows from the side of the temple, and where this water goes, there is life. In the wake of this water, everything lives. Water that flows from the side of the temple, and in the wake of the water flowing from the side of Jesus, everything lives. Because it's Jesus who in John chapter 4 What does he offer the Samaritan woman at the well? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus gives the water of life because Jesus is the new temple of God. The temple is completed, finished, perfected in Jesus and in the temple of Jesus, in that structure is life. I walked into the living room a couple months ago and Lara was watching one of those home makeover shows. I think there's a lot more of them now than when I was growing up. And this one, the, the wrinkle in this home makeover show is that it all happens in one day. So they cart the people away from their house discreetly and they move in and they completely redo it from top to bottom. It's almost like they tear it down and build it back up in one day. And so the people come back, they come back to the house and it's basically a brand new structure. It's a completely different house and of course when they come back, as is the case with these shows, the waterworks begin and they begin weeping and they're crying and there's joy and celebration. And they're not doing that because of the value of their home that's just gone up. They're not doing that for the sweat equity that they're going to see in their Zestimate on Zillow when they look up the price of their home. They're doing it because they have not only received a new structure, a new house, they've received a new life. 
the places where we live, the places in which we live and move and have our being, change our lives, change how we live. That structure is now going to give them life. And it's been done for them, right? It's, it's happened not in a way that they could have ever mustered on their own. It's been done for them. This new structure has been completed and finished that will change their lives. What's happened in Jesus has changed our lives. In the water that flows from the temple of Jesus, we have new life. He's changed the life of our church. He's changed the life of the world. And he's done that because he's taken on all of the death-dealing forces in the world. He's taken on at the cross the most grotesque and vile and hateful that humankind can do. As Fleming Rutledge says, in order for God truly to overcome the very worst, the son underwent the very worst. And now, it is finished. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What's finished? The temple. What's finished? The place where we meet God. The place where we go to worship What's finished is the old sacrificial order and what's in its place is the new sacrifice of love. The good news of the gospel of John is that in Jesus, the new temple, God's love is our life. We now have the living water of Jesus. In Jesus, the new temple, God's love is our life. And now we have a different way of relating to God because Jesus was raised up. There's a new way of relating to each other because Jesus was raised. There's a new way of relating to our sin because Jesus was raised. It's taken care of. The Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. There's a new way of relating to ourselves and to God because in Jesus, the new temple, God's life is now our love. And I know we still feel the effects of the fall. I know we still feel the pangs and devastation of sin and death. But in the body of Jesus, in the timeline of Jesus, in Jesus' eternity, it is finished. Whatever suffering and illness and death is still at our doorstep, in the timeline of Jesus, it's finished. Whatever sin is gnawing at you, we still feel the effects, but in Jesus, it is finished. I know the devil is on a scorched earth last ditch campaign to wreak as much havoc as possible, but in Jesus, the word made flesh, praise God, it's finished. It's done. Let us stand and praise the God who has finished his work in Jesus.